We'll be in Mark chapter 5 this morning. When was the last time you were interrupted? Has it happened today already at some point? Maybe, maybe sometime this week. Might have been a phone call and then when you're in the middle of something. Maybe somebody stopped by your office when you were focused on something and it was a, a distraction. Maybe uh, you were at home working on something and the kids started, started yelling in the other room and you had to go take care of that. Maybe it's going to happen right now. We've got one. One admitted that he was that, that kid. Maybe it's happening right now in other ways. Maybe, maybe you get a text right now and you're going to be interrupted and you're going to tune out for a little bit. <laughs> maybe someone's going to text me to see if I'll check. Um, Sometimes those interruptions that come are, are minor ones, right? We, we, we get pulled off task for a moment, and then we get right back on. We're able to, to, to get back on the tracks. And sometimes those interruptions that come end up changing everything for us. In the passage that we're looking at today in Mark, uh, we're going to witness an interruption that seems to tragically and permanently change the lives of one family. And yet, in it we see how, uh, how the Son of Man, how Jesus Christ, in the power of God, can turn such interruptions into majestic triumphs for his glory. You see, there's something slightly misleading about the title of this message. Because for Jesus Christ, focused on his mission, the interruption is part of the mission, in a sense, Jesus redefines for us what an interruption truly is. And I hope that we have a better understanding of that by the time we're done today. The big idea is that interruptions do not hinder the Son of Man's mission. Rather, they further it. That's what we want to understand today, that, that interruptions do not hinder the Son of Man's mission. Rather, they further it. So as you've turned to Mark 5, or maybe scrolled there, tapped there, whatever you need to do to get to Mark 5, we're going to begin in verse 21. Now, if you were, if you were here last week or if you tuned in online, the, the message was from the first section of, of Mark 5. We saw Jesus go to what would have been the eastern shore of the lake of, uh, of the Sea of Galilee, which is more like a lake, and got over there and, and in this region of the, the Gerizines in, in the Decapolis area, a Gentile predominantly area, healed a, a demon-possessed man. And just as quickly as he'd gone over to do this, he now returns to the, to the western side of, of the sea, to the more predominantly Jewish area. And that's what we're going to be picking up in the text today in verse 21. With that brief background, I'd like to read the whole, the whole passage so you can see how this unfolds, and then we'll take some time to look at it uh, more in depth. Beginning in verse 21, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years. 
years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Such a neat, remarkable story as we see this unfold. And, and we see, maybe you've picked up on them, the, the interruptions that happen throughout this, this passage. So we're going to begin, <clears throat> as we, as we kind of jump back to the beginning of that passage in verse 21, with, with this first point that a daughter is dying. That's what we see here at the beginning of this passage. As, as Jesus is coming up from the shore, beginning in verse 21, the, this ever-present crowd is surrounding him. And this man, Jairus, comes before him with a, a desperate plea. His daughter is dying, and, and he believes that Jesus can help. So who is Jairus? He's a, a synagogue ruler, we're told. And his responsibility would be to, to oversee all of the services of the synagogue. It would be an administrative role, primarily, not really a priestly role. Uh, so he would be uh, arranging all the, uh, the worship services that happened, uh, lining up the, the, the readings from the scriptures that would take place, overseeing the building. And he would hold a prominent place in, 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 in the city, in the, in the, in the area. Uh, knowing, it's interesting as you think about this, some of the run-ins that Jesus had with, with leaders in synagogues, it's kind of surprising that we see a person like this coming before Jesus, seeking Jesus' help for something. Uh, what we don't know is whether or not Jairus and Jesus had had an encounter before, whether this is one of the synagogues where Jesus had been before. We're not told in the text what city he's in. Uh, what I think is that regardless, Jairus has come to the point where it really doesn't matter. 
He's weighed his other options as far as the, the need that exists in his life, regardless of whether or not he's got a preconceived idea of what Jesus is about. He's come because he believes this is the best option he has. And so Jairus, himself a man of, of prominence in the community, finds himself at the feet of Jesus. It's interesting, we, we think of this man who, who was very religious, who, who was a religious leader, so to speak, who is now bowing before the Son of God himself. And he's doing it in total dependence. He's, he's bringing nothing to this. He is in complete dependence upon the one who is before him, Jesus Christ. And what brings him to this place? It's, it's his daughter, his, his only daughter. If you read in Luke's uh, parallel account, Luke 8, Luke mentions that it's his, Jairus' only daughter. And she's on her deathbed. The word that's used indicates that she's at death's door. There's not a moment to lose as far as Jairus can, uh, can, can conceive of it. So he believes that Jesus can make her well, can bring healing, and that's why he's here. And I, I feel like this is a point where we need to ask the question, what would bring me to the feet of Jesus in desperation? What would bring me to this place in desperation? You see, Jairus is a person that I find is pretty easy to uh, identify with in some ways. He was somebody who was a leader in the church, and he knew what that looked like to, to, to be religious. And in that can come a temptation toward self-righteousness, self-sufficiency. Can't we all find ourselves in that place? I can, I can work through this myself. Only when we've been brought to the end of ourselves do we feel that now is the time to come before Jesus. And what we see here and what Jesus wants us to understand is that's now. That's not till we get to the end of our, of our own resources. It's now, because we're already there. There's nothing that we can bring that will... We are completely, completely dependent upon the power of Jesus Christ to save us, to do anything with our lives. We are completely dependent it's an illusion that we think we can do anything of ourselves. Jairus has, has and is learning that, has been learning that and is learning that right here. And so we have to ask ourselves as well, what would bring me to this place? What would bring me to the feet of Jesus in desperation? What does Jesus want to teach me right now? as far as that goes. It's striking that as, as Mark records this, he doesn't have Jesus saying anything to Jairus in response. What speaks is Jesus' actions. It says that he stops whatever it was that he was already doing, and he goes with Jairus. Which is why it's interesting, while we really are getting into the, the second point in a moment where it talks about the interruption, this is actually the first interruption that happens in this account. Because Jesus is already doing something. What typically we saw Jesus doing when great crowds had gathered around him was, was he was teaching. 
He's coming up from the, from the lake. He's, he's probably teaching. And people have gathered to listen. And who knows, he may be in, in the middle of, of an illustration. And all of a sudden, this man bursts through the crowd, falls before him, and says, Jesus, this is my situation. And he stops whatever he's doing and goes with Jairus. His mission now is to go to the house of Jairus and bring healing to this daughter, or so it would seem. And that's where we turn to the second point that we're looking at this morning. On the way, Jesus encounters another interruption. Another daughter is dying. And that's really the truth of the account we see here. This woman who comes before Jesus is someone's daughter as well even if she seems to provide such a strong contrast against Jairus and his background and, and his family and his daughter. Here's this woman. Uh, her identity is anonymous. We're not given a name, but there's a lot of information about her that Mark packs into a couple verses. She has had this issue of, of bleeding for 12 years straight. We're not told definitively, but it's, it's likely a... Uh, a uterine bleeding, a menstrual bleeding, for which in her particular case, no cure had been found. That hasn't stopped people from trying. She's been seeking help, it says, from many physicians. And everything that they did to try to help her did not bring any uh, ease of her, of, of her discomfort, any ease of her pain. It actually made things worse. That can be the frustration of those who've walked the road of chronic illness, can't it? As we're journeying through something like that and, and physicians don't have the answers, so they guess sometimes. And, and those are educated guesses. I'm not faulting them. But they don't know because some of these chronic illnesses have no cure. And so it, here's, this, here's an experimental something, and it'll bring some, some ease, and it might for a while. Sometimes it brings so, some alleviation of the symptoms for a long time, and sometimes the side effects are so awful, you actually feel worse. Some of you have journeyed that or are journeying through that or know someone who is. For 12 years, this, this chronic illness has govern this woman's life in more ways than just her physical pain. Uh, additionally, this, as is the, the case in, uh, with, with uterine bleeding, there were also cultural and religious consequences that would have come uh, that were outside of her control for this woman. Uh, if, you, if you were to turn to Leviticus 15, as the, the law is being laid out, in verse 25, this is how it spells out for this particular, uh, for this particular scenario. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she shall continue in uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. So, so in the Jewish world, 12 years of being unclean spelled shame and, and social rejection for this woman. She would not be welcome to participate in, in any of the worship or, or, or community activities. She would not even be welcome around other people because for an unclean person to, to touch someone, that would make that person unclean. 
So anybody who knew what she had would not want to be near her. As is uh, the case, uh, as was the case of the demon-possessed man that we saw in the first part of Mark 5, in a similar situation, she would be, we shunned by people, they would actually add on to the pain, to, to, to the shame she was already feeling by the way that they were responding to her and treating her. Whatever had been her source of income, she'd exhausted it all trying to pay for a cure. If she had been married, it would have been unlikely. She still would be. So, so she's likely single, with no children, ashamed and, and ostracized by society. It's a complete contrast to this prominent religious leader and his family. And yet, she's a daughter. She's loved by the God who made her and knew exactly what was going on inside her body. And so now Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is allowing himself to be interrupted to touch her life in a personal way. But the interruption actually begins with, with her touch. I love how Mark sets this up, and he begins in, in the second part of verse 24 by letting us know that there's uh, this crowd. Jesus is going to Jairus' house to heal his daughter, and a great crowd, it says, is gathered around him because they want to go see a miracle. And it says that they're, they're packing in around him, they're surrounding him, they're swarming him. Luke tells us they're pressing in on him. Have you, have you ever been in a crowd like that? Where, where you're packed so tight that if the crowd moves, you have to move too. And people are bumping into you all the time. That's the scenario where we are. People are touching Jesus constantly right now. And here comes this woman working her way through the crowd, and she believes that Jesus can heal her. She's convinced that if she just touches his clothing, she'll be healed. And as I was thinking about that this week, I was, I was kind of bothered by that. This idea of treating Jesus as if, as if he's a, a genie's lamp to be rubbed and you get what you want. If I just touch him. The, the superstitious idea that, that he's got some magic power in his clothing. But then I started to understand a little bit more culturally of what, what people believed then and uh, understanding that, that leaders of prominence in society, um, military leaders, government leaders, it was believed that Truly, their, their power, their, their intellect, whatever it was that they, that they possessed, their clothing was an extension of them. So if you, if you touched their clothing, that, that would somehow transfer to you. It was superstitious. I was thinking about modern-day comparisons, and baseball players are really superstitious. And uh, maybe as a kid, when you, if you played baseball... You had that kid on the team who always hit home runs or seemed to always hit home runs. Like, if I use his bat, I'll hit home runs too. And it was because he was a good hitter, but we think, oh, if, if, if I take that, that, that transfer, that'll, that'll transfer over to me. So we're not that far off. And in this woman's superstition, this is what's fascinating. Jesus saw the faith behind it. She had faith that Jesus could heal her. 
It was a faith that was somewhat confused, and so now Jesus is going to work with that. Isn't that what he does with us? Does Jesus wait to work with us once we've come to him with a faith that's fully developed? I love that. That's what he does with us. There's hope for us in that. If you're in this room and, and you're, you feel like your faith is weak, you're in the right place for Jesus to work with that. We all find ourselves in, in the place of the man who cries out, I believe, so help my unbelief. So she navigates through the crowd and she wants to touch Jesus' garment. She wants to do it stealthily, not to draw attention to herself. And when she does, immediately, it says, she senses that, that she has indeed been healed. Just like that. And, and Jesus feels it too. This was different than all these other touches, all these other people that are bumping up against him. Nothing's happening, but all of a sudden, with her touch, power goes out from him. He feels that, and he wants to know where it went. He wants to know who received that. Not because otherwise she would get away unnoticed. No, he wants to know so that she will experience healing at a deeper level. He wants her to step forward so that he can take her feeble faith to a deeper place. The disciples don't get this. And I try not to be too hard on them because I'm thinking about what they're thinking about or at least trying to, which is the mission that they're on right now in their minds. Okay, we're going to Jairus' house because he's got a daughter that needs help. Remember Jesus, that's where we're going. You, you can't really stop and do this because this is an urgent need. Besides, Jesus, seriously, who touched you? That's a ridiculous question. Everyone's touching you. He just keeps right on going looking for the woman because at the same time, the disciples don't get it. They don't get the deeper mission of Jesus. Jesus' mission is furthered by the interruptions because they show his purposes to people. He seeks to make himself known to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And so he looks to see who touched him, not because he wants to scold her, but to make personal contact with her. She needed to know that she was healed by God, not because of superstition, but because of her faith. Jesus wants to make sure that the record is, is set straight before this woman just disappears off into the crowd with her healing. So what, what's going through her mind in the moment when he turns to address her? What happens when she's healed and he turns and says, who touched me? She's been found out, and now what? Remember, she's unclean. She's an, an outcast, and, and she's touched a, a man, a rabbi. These are all taboo in the Jewish culture. A woman doesn't do that, especially an unclean woman. This is going to bring additional shame upon her as if she's not had enough of that already, but she's been healed. And so the fear of being found out gives way to reverence and awe before Jesus. She's no longer 
worried about being ashamed. She falls down before him. This is, this is a posture of, of worship. And she explains everything. I think this is especially significant as, as we consider this passage as a whole. That's why we read it as a whole to begin with. Because this woman brought an interruption. And it would have been one thing for Jesus just to take a moment, touch her, heal her, and, and continue on the way to Jairus' house. No harm done, right? But it's a totally different story when Jesus stops and listens to her tell her story. It says that she told him everything. Twelve years of agony, of suffering, of being a, a social and religious outcast. Brings it all before Jesus who takes the time to listen and hear her heart. Do we see God's power to work through the interruptions? That's what Jesus does with interruptions, and it challenges me. I hope it challenges us. So, so she tells her story, and then Jesus responds. The, the words are, are few, but they're packed with, with Jesus' life-changing power. Isn't that great how he just sums thing up, things up so well? He calls her her daughter. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter, it's a, it's a personal, it's a family, a, a loving, compassionate name. And it's your faith that has brought healing. It wasn't the touch it wasn't the superstition, just to make sure that we're clear. And, and this concept that she's been made well, she's been saved. It's the, same, it's the same word, and Mark weaves that together so well throughout the gospel. There's a parallel between the physical healing that Jesus brings and the deeper healing that he brings to the soul. And he wants us, Jesus wants us, and Mark portrays it very well. Jesus wants us to see that the physical healing is a window into the deeper healing that Jesus brings. Because you see, our greatest illness is sin. And all of the effects that that has on our hearts, the curse that it brings, the, the wrath of God that it deserves, because he is a holy God. And sin is not Acceptable in the presence of a holy God. This illness is chronic. There's only one cure. And to search for a cure in any other place is only going to leave a person feeling more drained and more depleted than when he began. But Jesus has come. To deliver us from that spiritual ailment. He is that cure. The one who heals us. Who saves us. Who makes us well. As he has done for this woman. By faith we, we lay hold of that healing. Just as this woman was healed by her faith. True healing then leads to, to wholeness. This concept of shalom. Jesus says go in peace. It's not 
peace is the way we use the word so much today. It's a completeness, a, a wholeness. Living life in its, in its fullest sense, she's now arrived there because she's received the peace of Jesus Christ. And he sends her on her way also, assuring her that her physical ailment has been removed for good as well. She is physically cured. She is made clean. She's made whole. Hmm. By the presence and the power of Jesus. The interruption was necessary to bring her to a full understanding of who he was and what he had come to do. That's how God's timing works. It often makes little sense to us, but he is working things in, in his time to help people understand the healing that he offers. So how do I respond to the interruptions that surface as I follow Christ? How do I respond to interruptions? As Jesus right here is trying to redefine for us what interruptions are. Opportunities to point to the healing power of Jesus Christ. So, so do I see interruptions as opportunities for him to demonstrate his presence and power both in me and through me? Or do I allow those interruptions to convince me that, that somehow the plan has now been derailed? That God's work is now not going to be able to go forward We can fall into that temptation really quickly, can't we? It's going to come to the forefront right here for Jairus, the temptation. We see this here in the third point, which is the resolution that the, the healer restores again. But before we get to the resolution, we have to go through a crisis. Jairus has a critical decision to make. Because as we turn our attention to, to verse 35, here's the scenario Here's the crisis, as Jesus is still speaking to this woman, having this conversation as she tells her story. From Jairus' house come, come messengers, your daughter's dead. It's too late, so don't bother the healer, don't bother the teacher anymore. In their minds, what Jesus could have done for this girl the window has closed on that. There's nothing left to be done. It's too late. And verse 36 says that Jesus overheard what they said. And I love that word. Because in the way that it's used in, in Scripture, it carries three different meanings. One is to overhear something that, that wasn't meant for your ears. You've been in a in a conversation on the side and over here you hear something else and it catches your ear and you overhear it. That's the idea. Another one is just to ignore. Is <laughs> the second meaning. And, and the third meaning in, in which this, this word is used is, is to refuse to listen or to discount the truth of something that you hear. Jesus does all three of those things right here. He, he overhears something that wasn't directed to him but he completely ignores the advice because it's not true. He looks at Jairus. This is so important because we face this so often. There's voices that say, this isn't gonna happen now. This isn't possible now. The window for that opportunity has closed. And Jesus says, look at me. Do not fear 
only believe. Do not fear, only believe. So it's now Jairus' turn to respond to Jesus in such a way where, where Mark records no words, only actions. Perhaps Jairus considers how Jesus just healed another daughter who was also dying in a different way. And he did so clearly on the basis of her faith. It's doubtful that he fully understood. I don't think I would. And yet his faith was enough to compel him to go with Jesus, take Jesus back to his house. The crowds are left behind, we're told. The inner three of Jesus' disciples accompany him, and they go with Jairus back to the home. And inside, they encounter another crowd. This one's a, a group of mourners who have already gathered. Uh, this was uh, likely a group that mostly consisted of, of professional mourners. They were hired, as was the custom in the day, to come in and, and put on a, a display of mourning, weeping, wailing, songs. And over the din of all this noise, Jesus speaks. The child isn't dead. She's merely sleeping. And as is so often the case with those who are responding to Jesus, the crowd doesn't get it. They knew that she was dead. In a culture that was used to being around death, they understood. They weren't fooled. And she's dead. And they laugh Jesus' comments off as ridiculous, which... To their eyes, they were, because they didn't have eyes to see. They, they didn't have the concept of belief. Jairus has come on the basis of his faith, and they don't, they're not there. They're on the outside looking in. And so Jesus literally puts them on the outside as he and Jairus and Jairus' wife and the three disciples stay in the room. This is going to be an act of miraculous power that only a few are going to witness, those who are there because of their faith. And so it takes us to this place. Imagine the, the setting as, as Jesus kneels beside this bed. And Mark records the detail that, that she was 12 years old. And I do believe it's a very powerful visual as we considered the 12-year-old girls who led us this morning. We have an understanding of what that looks like. And in this culture, it would have been especially significant because it was the very end of, of the season of life before a young girl would now be of the age where she could be married. Cut just short of this, this next season of life of this journey. And she was, she was dead. There was no question about that. Luke, the physician in his gospel, also records that she was dead. So when Jesus is talking about sleep, what's he talking about? Is she mostly dead or all dead? A couple of you got that. No one wanted to be the first one to laugh. She was physically dead, but Jesus, in his reference to sleep, is saying something else. 
Just as Jesus is helping us redefine interruptions, Jesus is also redefining for us death. One commentator says that in Christ, death has become merely a sleep from which we will someday be awakened by the sound of his voice. Jesus wants Jairus and his family and the disciples to understand that truth. He wants them to see this daughter as he sees her. She's asleep. This death isn't permanent. At the sound of my voice, she's coming back. And so he demonstrates that reality. He takes her by the hand and tells to her, uh, get up. Jesus, Mark records Jesus' words in, in his native Aramaic, Talitha Kumi. Little girl, it's actually kind of a pet name. Honey, get up. Arise. And immediately, she's up. Not just up, she's walking. Which again, as we understand the energy of a 12-year-old of a girl, it makes sense. But it's interesting because, you know, sometimes... We have different compartments for things, and, and we think, of, okay, well, this, this girl was on her deathbed. She died, so Jesus is going to revive her, bring her back to life, and she'll recover. Because we've experienced things like that, maybe not on our deathbeds. Guys, if you've ever had the flu, you felt like you were on your deathbed. That's where all the wives are supposed to say amen. <laughs> Mine will, at least. <laughs> but, but when you recover from a serious illness, the first thing you do is... Well, you start to recover. <laughs> and eventually, you start to get up and move around. And eventually, your appetite comes back. What are the first things we see? She gets up, and she's walking around the room, and she's hungry. Jesus has healed her fully, completely, immediately. Jesus has reached his sovereign and powerful hand into this place where death had a hold and he restored full life and vitality. So the parents and the disciples are shocked. They're amazed. Jesus tells them not to let anyone know about what happened. How's that possible? In just a few moments, these, these crowds who are outside, who know that this little girl is dead, are going to see her come, come skipping out the door. Jesus has an intent in this. He he doesn't want people following him for the wrong reasons. We see that throughout the gospel. Those who are on the outside, who just moments ago laughed at Jesus, they scorned Jesus, are to remain on the outside. Jesus knows that this could be a great celebration. They could have a party. He could walk out with his arm around the little girl as the hero, as the savior, in one sense. But that's not his ultimate mission. So, so the point is that this will be kept quiet so Jesus can, can go to continue on his mission. What is his mission? He's come to save life in a different way. He's come to reach into death by, by looking at it in the face, by taking it upon himself, although he's not deserving of it, so that we will never have to. His mission is to overcome death and the grave so that we'll never truly have to know it. We'll never truly have to experience it. He's come to redefine death for us 
for those who are in Christ, to bring great and glorious hope to what lies beyond. And so he urges them to be silent so that he can continue on his mission before the crowds get wind of what's happened. The last thing he does, we saw it. He says, give the little girl something to eat. She's hungry. She hasn't eaten in a while. She's been sick. <laughs> and so, so their jaws, which are probably hanging on the floor still, we're told in amazement they're looking on. Back to reality, we're parents. We have to take care of our daughter. And do you think that from here on out, every time they prepared a meal in their home, they thought about it differently. They thought about what Jesus, every meal would be a reminder of what Jesus had done. Isn't that amazing? How something as simple every day brings a connection to the, the power, the faithfulness of God. And we see that too. We miss it. We close our eyes to it. But, but God brings those markers into our lives, those, those everyday things that remind us of, of his greatness, of, of his faithfulness, of his love and his care. So are we, are we alert and attuned to those what stands out in all of this is Jesus' full control of the situation. The entire time this is happening, not just in the home of Jairus, but, but throughout the whole account. In fact, nowhere in Mark do we get the idea that Jesus isn't in full control of his mission. Jesus is never hurried. We, we may try to hurry Jesus, but he's, he's right on with his mission. And our, our prayer, our, our desire is to understand what that is in a better way, to align with that. How does the healer's full control of all situations comfort me? How does, how does his full control challenge me? Challenge me to a deeper faith, a deeper trust. Remember, interruptions are viewed differently when the sovereign Lord is using them to further his mission. So what? How can I respond to life's interruptions on the basis of the Lord's sovereign hand at work? In other words, how am I going to allow interruptions to be redefined now when I recognize that interruptions are part of God doing his work, accomplishing his mission in me and through me? And now, how am I more prepared to embrace the son of man's work in my life, in his time for his purposes. Let's pray. God, we admit our dependence as the man kneeled before Jesus, as the woman came to Jesus. Our only hope of healing our only hope of life is found at the feet of Jesus Christ. God, so often we come to you with our agenda, with our plan, and we ask you to bless it. But we see here that Jesus' plan often takes a, a far different track. And so we surrender our will to yours. We surrender our desires to yours, and we, and we pray that you will truly help us. Help us to embrace interruptions as part of your mission. Help us to embrace the, the things that hold us up 
as part of your refining work in our lives. Lord, so that we can live lives that bring glory to Jesus Christ, that proclaim his greatness, his majesty, his glory, and the truths of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Would you stand? We close with words from 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So as you go, go with the reality that the, the victorious Lord Jesus is working in you and through you, and as he works, that labor is not in vain. You're dismissed. Amen. Amen.